0: You are listening to the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find podcasts and video clips of these lectures online at edcorner.stanford.edu.
1: This is the uh, start of the second half of the quarter for us. Um, we've had some great guests so far. We've got some terrific, terrific ones coming up. I'll be back later in a month uh, to actually close out the quarter with the folks uh, from BitTorrent and Excel, but today we've got Stan Christensen and you know per our custom, uh, I hope you picked up one of these uh, uh, flyers on the way in all his bio is there, but let me just point out that Stan is a you know things that caught my eye and have caught my eye over the years of knowing him that he's an investment banker, but you can still love him. he's still huggable, um, he, he's a partner at uh, Arbor advisors, which advises you know, uh, early-stage or, or mid-stage companies. But what's cool about uh, Stan is he's, he's been a mediator and negotiator all over the world. That's something he knows really, really well. He's been something like 75 countries, if you see that on there. That should jump out at you because we realize that here at Stanford we have so many students from around the world. Just in the, in the room, who is not from America in, the, in this room? Look at this, it's like half, if not more, and so this is, this is terrific that Stan has so much experience uh, globally. The other thing that caught my eye on here is that um, he, he went to Harvard and Brigham Young, but not Stanford. But we're not, we're not stupid, we, we've been uh, um, really honored to have Stan teach a, a class, but, you know, he's just a part-time teacher but he's extraordinary, he teaches a, a negotiations class, which is what we've asked him to talk about today. Uh, we all, all of us who teach entrepreneurship and innovation, uh, all realize that uh, a critical skill for people who want to think like an entrepreneur uh, in whatever they do is negotiating and influencing and persuasion. It really is. So uh, I always send people to that class because they get such rave reviews and so we're really blessed. He also teaches a course on uh, sustainable development, which I've heard great things about as well. So without further ado, let's welcome Stan. <laughs> do this, please.
0: Thank you. I always feel welcome uh, when I come to Stanford. Today, as I walked in, there were some folks out at the desk handing out flyers. They handed one to me as if I were a student, and I saw a picture of myself. And uh, I was behind a couple students walking in, and I learned something. Um, Often, I find that you can learn a lot by eavesdropping on students. And these particular two students, and you know who you are, um, one student said to the other, hey, do you know who's speaking today? And the other guy says, no, no, I don't know who's speaking. And I was trying to think of something really witty to say, and it's that moment where you just wish you could be really clever and pull out some great one-liner, and I, got, I had nothing. I just didn't have anything. So I just said, hey, I know who the speaker is. Um, and he looked at me kind of funny, like, you know, who are you? And I said, uh, I'm actually the speaker. I'm speaking today. And uh, the student said, well, on negotiation? And I said, yeah, yeah, on negotiation. And he just looked crestfallen. He looked disappointed <laughs> and I, I'm not sure, maybe I, I can speak with him afterwards, why he was so disappointed to find out that I was in fact the speaker. I mean, it might be because I'm wearing a blue shirt with brown pants. Someone at work told me today I, I, I did the wrong color combination. It could be because of that. It could be um, and ended up being a nice lead into the first point of the presentation, which is there's an assumption that to be a, a negotiation professor or a teacher of negotiation, you should be old and weathered and have gray hair and battle scars. People think of of negotiation as something someone like Henry Kissinger might do well or Jimmy Carter. Um, And that's the first sort of what I call convenient wisdom about negotiation, actually conventional wisdom about negotiation, and I probably should have added to that slide, um, that's often wrong. And I think that hopefully today, in the 45 minutes or an hour that we spend together, you'll see that you don't need to have gray hair, which is great news for most of you because I don't see a lot of gray hair around the room and that you'll actually um, know more about negotiation than lots of the people that you'll work for and work with um, in your careers, because not many people know very much about it. So just quickly, a couple of these points. Um, People often assume that negotiations are one-time events. In fact, I think that almost all negotiations in life are repeat. They're serial. You're going to see the people you negotiate with more than once Yet almost everybody negotiates as if it's a one-time deal, as if they're buying a car from a car dealer and price is the only thing that matters. And when in fact, you would probably negotiate very differently if you knew you were gonna see people again. And most of you will find that in your lives, people you thought you'd never run into again, you will. I remember about four or five years ago, I was in South Korea, I was um, doing some advisory work on a negotiation between North and South Korea. I was in the Intercontinental Hotel and I got in the elevator and I was you know, up about the 30th floor and I just kind of glanced at this other guy in the elevator and I thought, oh my gosh, that looks like this kid I got in a fight with in high school. I can't possibly be him. And you know, I said, you know, Rob, is, is, that you? is your name Rob? And he said, yeah, I'm Rob. And I, I would have hoped and thought I would never see him again in my life and there he was, Intercontinental Hotel in Seoul. Um, I did a an advisory project for Haagen-Dazs ice cream a few years ago. Pillsbury had just bought Haagen-Dazs, and they had been battling with Ben & Jerry's for 15 years, fighting for shelf space in the super-premium ice cream segment. And when Pillsbury bought them, some Pillsbury analysts figured out that, in fact, most people prefer either Haagen-Dazs or Ben & Jerry's, and they eat either-or, but not both. In fact, how many people in here primarily, if they had to choose between Ben & Jerry's, would choose um, Haagen-Dazs over Ben & Jerry's? So quite a few Haagen-Dazs fans. How many would choose Ben & Jerry's? Okay, it's about half and half. Now, if the statistics are correct, each of you, only about 10% of the people that prefer one would eat the other. There's only about a 10% crossover fact factor. And so they realized, why should we be battling each other? Our real competition is people trying to move up into the super premium ice cream segment, people like Friendly's and Dryers and Breyers. And so they decided to conduct a joint venture between the two companies to do joint distribution because most of their... Sales were actually in convenience stores, which are hard to distribute to. And so I helped them negotiate that agreement. Now, you can imagine within the management of both companies was sitting down on each side of the table, you know, there's a lot of apologizing going, like, oh, we're so sorry we took you out on this market. And yeah, I know we kind of, that thing we did to you, really feel bad about that. And, <laughs> you know, here's some dulce de leche, and you know, I hope you feel better. Um, and, and these guys thought they would never have to negotiate on the same team, but in fact, they found that they did. So I find that the assumption of negotiations being repeat and building relationships in negotiations is a safe one. I think a lot of people assume that negotiation is about winning or beating the other side, and they negotiate, again, as if they wanted to win, and I do that. I find myself getting caught up all the time and thinking, wow, just, you know, I've got to get a better price or do better than the other side, and I'll catch myself and I'll realize the things that I'm advocating for, arguing are, you know, minuscule and not that important, and I think it's really hard to get out of that mentality, but I want to sort of push you into that mindset today. I think not necessarily about winning in the negotiation, but about sort of getting the best deal. I have a couple of nephews uh, and a niece that live in Palo Alto, and often my sister asks me to help with them. And I was reminded of this principle um, a little while ago when I was picking up my nephew David from a soccer match. And he was about 10 years old, and uh, he jumps in the car, and I was trying to you know, make uncle-nephew conversation and not make it too awkward. And I said, uh, David, uh, did you guys win the game? And he paused, and he looked at me, and he said, Uncle Stan, both teams just had a really good time. (laughs) And I was just, you know, flabbergasted and floored and realized, you know, I was thinking about this whole thing in terms of the metaphor of just winning. The final um, thing I'd like to make um, the point about conventional wisdom is that people assume that you need a lot of natural talent, that certain people are better suited to be negotiators than others. And I just find that while natural talent helps, education helps a lot. And since most people... Aren't very trained, aren't very practiced. People that come to me and say, as they often do, wow, I'm a really bad negotiator. My response to them is, yeah, but so are most other people. And if you just do a couple things better, you're going to be better than they are. And so there's hope for everyone in terms of being effective at negotiation. There's some mistakes that people tend to make. Often people focus a lot on tactics. And by tactics, what I mean as um, tricks or methodologies to try to take advantage of the other side common ones that you might be aware of are things like you know, anchoring in high and then giving small concessions, maybe playing a game of good cop, bad cop. Um, actually, quick story comes to mind there. I was advising uh, a friend who's a screenwriter on her negotiation with a large entertainment company uh, that will go unnamed. And she said, yeah, I was in the negotiation and one guy's being really nice to me and one guy's being really tough on me. And I, the consultant, said, oh, that sounds like a case of good cop, bad cop. And she said, no, it was much more of a case of bad cop antichrist. (laughs) And the danger of playing these kind of games is, again, let's say you know 10 tactics. They might know 11. Let's say that they know nine, and you win the negotiation knowing better tactics. People tend to want to try to get even. And if you're going to assume that you're going to see them again, the last thing you want to do is win, quote, the negotiation, by playing tactical games on them and that's what most people do in negotiation you want to be aware of tactics but not use them as your primary method of negotiating I think that people often focus on the wrong things whether it's they try to win whether it's they want to not lose whether they end up uh, as sometimes students in my class focus on they're like hey I want to make him look really bad in front of the class Um, there's all kinds of ways that people measure success and I think that often these measures are partial they're not very complex I was doing a mediation down in Chile a couple of years ago between a labor union in the mining industry and management. And down there, you know, labor management negotiations in this country can get tough, but down there it's a whole different deal. I mean, these guys, the labor guys, bring guns to the negotiation for symbolic purposes. And we'd been down there for a, a couple of months negotiating a deal, and we thought we had a pretty good mediated settlement between the two sides. And all that was remaining was a ratification vote on the part of labor. So we went with a labor team of negotiators to labor and we said, look, we think this is a good agreement. It's good for management. It's good for the union. It meets a lot of their interests. We strongly advocate and strongly recommend that you ratify it and say yes. Took the vote, several thousand members, and pretty overwhelmingly they turned it down. We were surprised and we thought, wow, how can you turn this deal down? It's a great deal for both sides. And they said, well, you said it was good for management. And if it was good for management, it can't possibly be that they wouldn't give a little bit more. So go back and see if you can get a couple more concessions. We said, wow, you we think we've kind of been over it. And I doubt there's really you know, anything else to get out of this. You know, we think you ought to take the deal you've got. No, go back to management, try to get more. So we went back to management, not surprising to us, they said, you know, pound sand, we're not giving any more. And it led to a continuation of the strike that was in progress, six more months, billions of dollars, lost in the mining industry, which was a big part of the Chilean GDP, and uh, over this sort of principle of, look, if we're not happy completely, we want them to be unhappy, which again, not a very sophisticated way of measuring success, and we're going to talk about in just a minute, more robust and complete way to measure success. People assuming that the pie is fixed, um, people often, and lawyers fall into this trap frequently, that they see the primary method of negotiating is advocating for their client, which means Try to get more for your client, hence less for the other side as opposed to being creative and problem solving. And I think that in negotiations often the task is figuring out how to creatively expand the pie as opposed to just divide up the pie. Not recognizing or questioning assumptions. People will ask me frequently when they hear that my background is in negotiation. They say, well, you know, tell me the five things or tell me the one thing. What's the most important thing you have to do to be good at negotiation? I was at a party last night, a cocktail party, and a woman asked me that very question. She said, just tell me one thing. What's the secret? And uh, I thought, I'm going to mention this one, you know, recognizing the assumptions that you make and being open to questioning them. So all of us make assumptions. I make assumptions today. I make them based on my background. I'm a white male. I'm an investment banker. I teach a negotiation class at Stanford. I think I know some of the things that you guys might be interested in hearing today. And some of my assumptions are going to be right, and some of them are going to be wrong. We'll find out a little bit in the Q&A what you guys really care about. But I think that some people can recognize those assumptions. Not that many people get to the level where they're able to effectively question those. It often takes a pretty cathartic event for that to play in um, into the picture. I was doing a uh, part of a, a mediation in the former Soviet Union not too long after it was coming apart, and was in the area of the Caucasus, uh, Georgia and Abkhazia. Some of you that are from that part of the world or, or know that history were sort of at each other. The um, the Abkhaz had just right a week before we got there, they had bombed the hydroelectric electric plant of the Georgians and took out all the power. It was January. Tbilisi, which is a city of three million people, had no electricity. People are freezing to death. It was a, a very ugly situation. And we got sort of parachuted into there, and our job was to go and meet with the leaders of Abkhazia. We'd flown into Tbilisi. And it was a really dangerous road that we had to take, about a five-hour, mostly dirt road. And the rebels would mine the road every day. And so the British minesweepers would go in the morning and take out the mines. And uh, we had a U.N. um, escort. And so there was some safety in that. But nevertheless, um, you know, when you're in a Jeep and you're kind of going over bumps in the road, you kind of think about it. And I was with a reporter from Georgia, and he was saying all these terrible things about the Abkhaz people. Oh, these people are awful, they smell bad, they're dishonest, you know, their mother's this. I mean, just like these horrible epithets. And, you know, I, I said to him, well, why are you going? You know, and he said, well, I'm a reporter. I want to write a story about these people. I mean, I have to see firsthand the filth that these people are. He's like, why are you going? Why are you risking your life? And I said, oh, that's, that's kind of what I do. I mediate. Sometimes we come to, to war-torn areas. And we were both um, in Sukhumi, the capital of Abkhazia, for a week. We obviously made it safely. And about a week later, we ended up um, in the same caravan coming back. You know, once every couple days there would be a caravan. It would go together. And I said, you know, did you get your story? I mean, are you are going to write the story that you had prepared to write? And he said it was interesting. After sort of spending a week with those people, breaking bread with them, meeting their families, seeing how tough the war has been. The Capitol had been completely bombed. I mean, it just looked like, you know, some, a moon-like landscape. He said, you know, it was really hard to think of what bad things I could write about them. I actually found they weren't that different from me. They liked the same sports. Some of our same foods were in common. And I find over and over again, as I've mediated conflicts around the world, people that spend time together have a hard time, you know, not questioning their assumptions and not realizing that they have more in common than, than more different. So what is? I've talked about some of the negative things that people do in negotiation. What is effective negotiation? Um, First of all, let me define negotiation as any attempt to persuade or influence a party to do something. So if you define it that broadly, it's a lot of what you do every day. I often um, ask students, well, you know, what have you negotiated today? And they come up with all kinds of answers. I recently asked a a group of students, do you remember the first time you negotiated? And one sort of pluckish young student raised his hand and he said, I think the first time I negotiated was when I cried for milk. Now, at the end of the quarter I realized he hadn't made progress um, from the time that he was born to what he was currently (laughs) doing Um, and some people just do the same thing over and over again in life rather than thinking systematically about negotiation but I think negotiation is really effective relationship management now if the talk had been framed today as a talk on relationship management not that many of you would have come and not that many people would sign up for my class it would be mostly women or some of their boyfriends that the women you know persuaded to go and get a course on relationship management so i teach this course in negotiation and it sounds really cool and people want to do it but we do a lot of soft things a lot of communication a lot of process things and I think that fundamentally that is what negotiation is about, is how to have relationships and manage them effectively. I think it's an important life skill that everyone, you know, I'm super biased, but I think it's an important life skill that everybody needs, whether you're in the public sector, the private sector, in academics. I mean, academics, if any of you are going into academics, that's the most brutal um, in terms of negotiation and where you need the most skill. There's some of the hardest waters to negotiate are within academic uh, institutions. I, I really think that negotiation is about creative problem solving. Um, I say to my engineering students, and I know lots of you are engineers, um, a thing I repeat frequently is the solution is not necessarily the answer. One of the worries that I have as a, a teacher here at Stanford is that we're just generating a bunch of analysts to get to the right answer, but they're not able to actually get much done in organizations. And negotiation, think of it as a tool to get things done as opposed to just coming up with the right answers. So, what I'd like to do for the next um, 10 or 15 minutes is focus on a framework for negotiation. I think when you think about how to do it, I mean, what do you want to do um, to be effective at negotiation? You want to prepare. How do you prepare? You need to have a framework to prepare. And this is one useful one that comes out of uh, the Harvard Negotiation Project. Roger Fisher, who wrote the book Getting to Yes, is, is really responsible for most of it. And he was my mentor, and I learned a lot there from him. And let me just give you an example from the corporate world um, to illustrate some of these points. So, recently at the investment bank that I work at, Arbor Advisors, we were negotiating with a potential client, an engagement letter, and we were through all the difficult points, the fees, et cetera, and we got to what's called the arbitration clause, which means, some of you know, that you know, if we end up in dispute with them, we won't take it to court, but we'll take it to a third-party arbitrator, and they said we would never do that. We would never take an arbitration clause. In fact, if you're not willing to concede on that, we're going to go to a different investment bank. We've already identified them, so they went to this alternative, what they might do if we don't come up with an agreement. And we said, wow, it's kind of surprising. I mean, usually it's in our mutual interest to have an arbitration clause. And they said, no, we want you, so sticking with this point of commitment, we want you to give in, make a commitment, and if you don't, we're going to walk away and go to the other investment banks. They're stuck outside the circle. And I want you to think about the elements inside the circle is where you generally want to be in the negotiation. It's the circle of value and where most of the value is added in the negotiation. So if you're fighting outside the circle, it's hard to get creative and hard to add value. And so... After lots and lots of talk about this and probing, um, I said, Well, why is it that you don't want to have an arbitration clause? And they said, Well, it's interesting. Um, we've had a bad experience with arbitration in the past. In fact, we had a large settlement decided against us, and the arbitrator seemed like he was prejudiced. And I said, Prejudice? Like, what do you mean it's prejudice? Prejudice against you personally, or prejudice against your company? And they said, Look, we're both Jewish, the two founders, and we feel like the guy was anti Semitic, and that he really decided based on that. He wasn't neutral, he came in with the agenda. And we just never want to put ourselves in a position where that could happen to us again. So there I learned a little bit about their interests, some of their concerns, what was important to them. And I said, well, that's, that's new information. That's kind of interesting. Let me kind of think about that for a day. And I went back and met with some of my colleagues at work. I talked to some outside folks and did a little bit of brainstorming around different options that might have met some of those interests. And some of the examples of options that came up were things like well, maybe we could do a mediation process instead of an arbitration. Or maybe we could have a panel of arbitrators. Maybe have three arbitrators instead of one, and so the whole thing isn't resting on one person's potential prejudice. I we went through a series of other options and went back to the company and said, what about some of these options? Would these meet your interests? And they actually got attached to the panel of arbitrators. So they said, gee, if it was three, and it was sort of two out of three decides, I think that would meet our interests. I think we could get done. And so we're able to solve that problem Rather than fighting outside the circle about what, we would, what they might do if we couldn't come up with an agreement, we got inside the circle and explored kind of different approaches of coming up with an answer. The principle of criteria is interesting. Criteria are objective standards that are independent of what either side wants. So if you're arguing about, um, you know, numbers, often it's good to back up and say, well, what are some objective standards that we might use to decide? Um, a lot of negotiations that I have happen when I'm traveling. I was in a cab, um, this is probably four or five years ago, in the north of Colombia. I was going to do a, a mediation between a couple of the guerrilla groups and the government, and my interest was to get to the hotel as fast as possible from the Medellin airport. And so I got on the cab, and I asked the cab driver if he knew where the hotel was. And he said, "Oh, absolutely, sir. And I always get nervous when I get in cabs in those kind of countries because I see someone that looks like me, and they just think, hey, this is going to be a good fare, and I think, hey, I'm a negotiation expert. I don't want to be taken advantage of. <laughs> now, in this case, there was a meter. You call that in English, a meter, taxi meter? Um, and so I felt like um, if he took the most direct route, I wouldn't get taken. And so I was sort of comfortable and just kicking back in the cab. And I wasn't paying much attention. After about a half an hour, it seemed like we were taking a little bit of a circuitous path to the hotel. And I just asked him, I said, how much further, or, you know, are we on track? And he said, oh, a little bit off track, you know. Not sure exactly where we are. And I said, "Okay, should we pull over and get some directions?" And he said, "Yeah, let's do that." We pulled over and we kept driving. About 20 more minutes, and we were still driving, and we seemed to again be doing serpentine. And I said, "Look, I don't think we're taking the most direct route here. Can you pull over?" And I got out of the cab and you know thought about figuring out alternative transportation, but you know my alternative wasn't very good. My bags were in the cab. You know, Medellin, Colombia, midnight at this point. You don't really want to sort of walk away from that negotiation. So I asked for directions from someone on the street, and then I directed the cabbie to the hotel, and we got there. Now, the amount on the taxi meter was about $60 U.S., which in Colombia is a lot of money. And the question is, what do you pay them? Do you offer zero? Um, You know, what would you do? And so I thought of this principle of objective criteria, and I said, okay, precedent. Precedent's always a criteria that you can use. And I asked him, like, what do you normally do when you drive around with a client lost? I'm sure it's happened in the past. And not surprisingly, his response was, never happened. First time, first time. This has never happened to me before, which I didn't necessarily believe, but wasn't getting anywhere. And I asked him, uh, what about your dispatcher? Certainly your dispatcher knows how much it costs from the airport to this hotel. Would that work? He said, I don't have a dispatcher. I'm independent. So another criteria that didn't work. So finally I said, why don't we go in and talk to the front desk you know, receptionist or manager, whoever might be there, about what it generally costs from the airport to the hotel. Now, he didn't like that. It didn't seem like a great idea from his perspective. But he had a hard time saying, no, that would be unfair. I mean, we can't do that. That would be ridiculous. So we walked in together, asked the front desk manager. He said it was about $25 U.S. I paid him the money, and he was gone. Now, I might have started at zero. He might have started at 60. We might have sort of played concessions back and forth and ended up at you know, 25 or $30. And it might have been the same settlement, but we wouldn't have known that it was fair. It wouldn't have been based on any objective standard. And I think that it's really important that you think about basing your agreements on things that are objective, not just what one party wants or what another party wants. The, uh, the two elements at the top, communication and relationship, I'll just talk briefly about those. They're kind of the processy, sort of touchy-feely way to get into the circle. On communication, um, since we don't have a lot of time, I won't go into depth here, but one notion to just think about is rather than communication as listening and talking and hearing, think about communication as convincing the other side that you can hear them and that they are being heard. Um, I was talking to someone that used to work with with Bill Clinton, President Clinton, and uh, she said, you know, the thing about Clinton was he was an amazing listener. I mean, he would just focus and he would make eye contact and you could just tell he was internalizing things. And the fact that he was listening was the most important thing in the conversation. And she referred to him as the aerobic listener. And that ended up, you know, making him very, very persuasive in negotiations, his ability to listen. I was doing a mediation in New York um, with the Pequot the Native American tribe, the, the Pequot Indians. Years ago, they were looking to expand their casino efforts. They were one of the first tribes to put casinos on the reservations on the reservation and the city council was opposed to it and there we came in as the mediators. And uh we were at the table, there were several representatives from the tribe, several representatives from the city council, and it wasn't going very well. And there was this one gentleman on the city council who was particularly difficult. I mean just cut people off constantly, didn't listen, and uh you know, hard as we tried to facilitate him, he's just one of these guys who was going to speak his mind and, you know, not be productive. And it was really hampering our process. And in one particular instance, a native woman was talking, and he just cut her off, you know, pretty brutally and pretty rudely. And then a woman on the city council, so same side of the table as him on the team, cut him off and said, John, you're just not listening to them. Can you just take a step back and listen to what they have to say? And so that just changed the whole tone of the negotiation, and we caucused uh, at about 15 minutes after that happened, and I went off, um, you know, with the, the native folks, and the folks from the city council went off with the other mediator, and what the the uh, person on the native tribe who'd been interrupted said, hey, you guys, there's this one woman on the city council side who seems to get it. I mean, she gets it that the guy on her side's kind of being a jerk, and I think she's kind of reasonable, and I think we could deal with her. Maybe there's a way we can kind of use her to, to leverage her goodwill towards us. So as the neutral party, what we thought is, gee, let's exploit that, and let's maybe— reduce the size of the group and get them off on a sidebar and see if they can make some progress, which we did, and ended up leading to solving the dispute. So that sort of single intervention of sort of showing that there was an air of communication on his side and listening to the other side ended up being very persuasive. So listening isn't just a nice touchy-feely thing to do. It can be extremely, extremely persuasive in negotiations. Relationship. I've mentioned a couple things about relationship. It's incredibly important that you build relationships, and I define relationships as being able to work out differences effectively. Okay, it doesn't mean you get along. It doesn't mean you like the other side. You're gonna have to deal with people your whole life that you don't necessarily you know, want to work with, but you have to. The other thing I find is that people, and I alluded to this before, people often have more in common than they think, and it's about finding things that you have in common with people. I was in uh, another taxi story this weekend. I was in New York City, and for those of you that have uh, taken the taxi ride from uh, JFK to Manhattan, you know that that can, there's huge variation in how long that can take. That can take a half an hour if you're lucky, and it can take two and a half hours if you're unlucky. Well, Friday uh, rush hour in the rain, uh, it was the latter. Uh, it took me two and a half hours after you know a six hour flight, and I was just you know so tired of being in this cab, and I was trying to meet a friend for dinner, and I could see as we weaved our way through Manhattan, that uh, you know, everyone in the town is looking for a cab. And it was gonna be impossible once I got dropped off um, at my friend's apartment to get another cab and meet uh, another friend for dinner. So I said to the cab driver, hey, is there any way that you could wait? You know, I'm happy to pay you. I'll run up, I'll take a shower, I'll take five minutes, and I'll be back down, and then we'll go to the restaurant. Wouldn't that be great? He said, not a chance, I'm not waiting for you. And so I thought, well, there's gotta be a way to get to this guy, and I said, well, where are you from? And he said, I'm from Haiti. I said, oh, Haiti. You know, Haiti's great. I've never been there. I love Haiti. Um, <laughs> uh, I, d- I do speak French and know enough about uh, Haiti to know that they speak, uh, speak some French over there. And I started speaking my my French. And he could tell what I was trying to do. Um, it was pretty transparent, my play at the relationship. And But it, it worked. You know, he wanted to talk. And, and uh, he gave me the obligatory, oh, you speak pretty good French, even though it wasn't that good. And we started <laughs> chatting. And and uh, I thought, what else do I know about Haiti? What else do I know about Haiti? And I remember this, this book that I had read. Maybe some of you have read Mountains Beyond Mountains, Paul Farmer's kind of story of setting up clinics in Haiti. And I said, hey, do you know about Paul Farmer? And he said, yeah, I've heard of that guy. And I said, have you read the book Mountains Beyond Mountains? And he said, no, I haven't read it. And I said, I think you'd like it. And he said, yeah, I think I would too. And I said, I'd love to send it to you. I'd love to. If you give me your address, I'll you know, send you the book. I'll put it you know, tonight on Amazon. I'll put it in an order. And he was just kind of laughing because he could see exactly what I was doing. <laughs> But he didn't really mind having it done to him. And so we're sort of forming this mini-relationship. And so we get to the apartment, and I say, how about it? Do you have 10 minutes you can wait for me? And he says, go ahead, just hurry up. And, you know, he waited for me, and I was able to make it to dinner with my friend on time. So it's kind of a mini-relationship story. So you don't have to form long-standing relationships. Agreements are worked out in the context of relationships. Now, people, as I mentioned, often think we don't like the other side, They might cast aspersions, as uh, the reporter from Georgia did on the Abkhaz people. I find that I've worked a lot around the world, as Tom mentioned, um, a lot on political conflicts and ethnic conflicts. And in one particular one that I was involved in in South America, um, Peru and Ecuador had this longstanding border dispute, and there's about a 50-square-mile chunk of land that every, you know, five years or so there'd be a little flare-up and maybe a couple people would get killed and it would be settled for another five years. So we were called down to mediate. And the representative from Peru was just a very difficult, tough military man, kind of came in his uniform, kind of the Don Rumsfeld of Peru, just didn't look like he was there to, you know, have a relaxed experience. Hard guy, I mean, just not who you want to see on the other side of the table. And the guy from Ecuador was a politician, cabinet-level guy, and he had been told by the president of Ecuador, look, do whatever you want down there, but don't commit. I mean, it's election year, we don't want to look weak. If nothing gets done, that's fine, but just you know, don't concede. So that was what we had to work with. And so we spent a couple of days trying every possible different mediation technique. And uh, it was just kind of one of these things where all of us knew that it wasn't gonna work. I mean, you could kind of see that you're going through the motions. They're not really into it. And finally, and it, again, it wasn't me that came up with the idea. It was another guy at my firm. He said, why don't you guys go in the next room and just talk about things without us? I mean, we're not really being that helpful. But why don't you go in the next room and see if you can talk about things that don't relate to this conflict. Talk about your families. Talk about your religion. Just not about Peru and Ecuador and this land because we're not making progress and see if you can form a little bit of a relationship. So they thought this was a really dumb idea um, and they didn't want to do it. But they agreed. They said, okay, we'll go talk for a half an hour. So they went in the next room for about a half an hour and... Yeah, you know, truth be told, we were kind of eavesdropping and, and, and trying to listen to what was going on. and uh, We were hearing bits and pieces, and it sounded like, you know, fairly productive, nothing negative. We didn't hear any loud noises in there. And a uh, half hour goes by, they're still talking. Forty-five minutes, they're still talking. An hour, they're still talking. About an hour and 15 minutes after we started, they emerged together. And you could just tell the whole thing, the whole spirit was different. Their countenances were different, positive experience. The general from Peru says, I'm prepared to work with this man, let's sit down and negotiate." So We said, wow, that's fantastic, I mean, great, well, great news, let's, let, yeah, let's sit down, great, um, let's get going. And uh, we said, like, just curious though, I mean, you know, seem like you're in a different place, what happened in there? I mean, seems like there must have been some kind of a breakthrough. And the general said, he said, I learned that he has a handicapped daughter, and, you know, I have a handicapped daughter, and I know that 14 hours a day his wife, you know, takes care of that child. And I'm prepared to work with him. I think this is a good man. And if you could sort of feel the emotion at that time, you know, in that room, you could see why it was pretty easy for those guys together without us. I mean, we were basically irrelevant at that point to sort of figure out a deal, and they were able to construct an agreement where there's a national park that they would trade off monitoring and a dispute that was, you know, 50 years old went away over them figuring out that they had something in common in their relationship rather than focusing on their differences. And so I just think that when you think about Um, negotiation. They're always worked out in the context of relationships. If you're good at relationships, you're good at negotiation. Now this framework, um, I mentioned that you can use it, thinking about these elements beforehand. So when you prepare for a negotiation, you can use it during a negotiation to think about where are you. Are you inside the circle? Are you outside the circle? Um, How do you get back inside the circle? If we had some more time, we could talk about strategies for that. But it's a nice framework if you can go back to your constituents and say, look, we've got an agreement okay and we think it's better than our alternative okay what our walk away position would be if we didn't come up with an agreement it meets our interests pretty well It meets their interests pretty well we've explored a lot of creative options it's based on objective standards objective criteria the relationship has been improved i mean the product of working with these guys is that we're more likely to be able to work together the next time effectively together The communication has been clear, two-way. You know, we've learned stuff from them. The commitment is clear. We know who's going to do what when. That's a good outcome in a negotiation, okay? That's a more sophisticated, comprehensive approach than, hey, we played good cop, bad cop, and we won. We're ready to get them the next time, okay? Because the real world just doesn't work that way. If you get them that time, which you may well do, in the short term you can make all kinds of progress playing tactical games, but it doesn't lead to long-term relationships. And I'm not, often students say, well, this seems really soft and touchy-feely, and it's not. I haven't said anything about concede, give in. I've said, think systematically about your preparation, have a framework in mind, and you'll do better. So let's take uh, just a quick five-minute look at an application of the framework. I was trying to think yesterday, what would everyone relate to a little bit that we could analyze? And I thought of, you know, the current war on terror that we're involved in. Everyone has an opinion and has read about it. And so from a negotiation perspective, it's actually been one of the few positive byproducts of the war on terror has been, it's a lot to talk about in terms of negotiation, more to do differently than than what do we do effectively. But let's just pick out, we probably don't have time to review them all, according to some of these elements, how would we analyze some of the negotiations that have taken place in terms of the war on terror and what might we learn uh, from that process? So again, we won't have time to go into all these. Let me pick a couple. Um, I think, you know, the second one, communication, Probably that would be the single most important thing that I think we as a country, and particularly uh, the Bush administration, has done poorly in terms of of the war. Um, I've talked to lots of people that have been, you know, involved at high levels. I talked to a person who, a senior person in the Defense Department, And, uh, you know, this person said to me, yeah, I'd go in and I'd do a PowerPoint presentation to Secretary Rumsfeld and, you know, everyone knew that you couldn't get past the second slide. I mean, he would just be bombarding you with questions, disagreeing, not let you make your presentation. His mind was already made up. It just didn't matter what any of the analysts said. There was just no way, no two-way communication another uh, person who's a, a senior advisor in the White House who's responsible actually for you know giving Bush the messages daily on you know, what's going on in Iraq and giving him the Iraq updates so was a pretty you know, direct involvement she said it was just too tough to give him uh, any negative feedback he just was so invested in his administration um, in the legacy of his administration being positive and having the war go positively that when you bring him bad news he couldn't hear it he just couldn't hear it so again Lack of dialogue, lack of two-way communication, you know, has definitely hurt us there. Criteria, one of the problems in the whole notion of a war on terror is that there's no objective measure of success, you know, how in the world would you know when you'd been successful? Um, And I think if we went around the room and we had time to ask people, you know, what does success mean in that war? How will we know when we've won or how will we know when we've lost? It would be very, very difficult in a a very educated group like this for anybody to have a sense of that. And so not having objective criteria as a measure of success, I think, hampers you when you're trying to get something done. Um, On the point of commitment, one of the things you hear currently, and the administration is changing its position on this slightly recently, uh, thankfully, is, well, we don't negotiate with terrorists. Um, Specifically, they've really cut off, for the most part, dialogue between uh, the U.S. and Syria, the U.S. and Iran. We don't really have diplomatic relations. Huge, huge, huge mistake. You could say um, horrible things about the Iranian people. You could um, despise them. You could say that they're terrorists. And if you're not talking to them, if you're not in dialogue, trying to form a relationship, there's no chance that you're going to have anything worked out. And so, again, negotiation as the art of relationship management is be in dialogue. Now, that doesn't mean that you go soft. It doesn't mean that you give anything. You just want to be dialoguing and communicating. And so what I wrote here, which is separate the what you might concede and give them from, are you actually communicating them, and is there dialogue, it's a big mistake ever to cut off dialogue. I've been in lots of negotiations with hosti- in hostage situations, with terrorists. You always want to talk. There is no situation I've ever been involved in when I thought closing off dialogue was a good solution. Um, let's just talk briefly about relationship. I think that um, another, another big problem of the war on terror has been that we have... Uh, kind of not made a lot of friends along the way, and and part of the way that we've not made a lot of friends in our effort is by sort of casting aspersions on others that don't agree with us. It's sort of this notion of you're with us or you're without us. That tends to not do very much for building relationships. Um, This notion that there is an access of evil, that tends to not build relationships in those countries. This notion that there's a – I was in Europe right after the Secretary of Defense made the comment on the old Europe versus the new Europe, and you can just imagine all the jokes all around Europe, like, hey, we're part of the old Europe. Um, You know, and and I think that when we've gotten in trouble, no one's really wanted to come to help us because we were so belligerent in our process. And so, again, think of this framework, and and I'll kind of move on from this right now, but think of this framework as a way to diagnose negotiations that are going on, whether it's a current event, whether it's whether you're going to go to one movie or another with your roommate, who's going to do the dishes, how you're going to work out your differences with your boyfriend or your girlfriend, the same framework um, can be applied to, to work out differences. Um, I'll talk for two or three minutes and then we'll just go to Q&A. A A couple of just quick uh, negotiation tips. So here's five that I came up with yesterday. There's no magic number about five. These are just some that, that I find particularly useful. Preparation. Most people don't prepare for negotiations. When you ask people how much they prepare, they say something like, well, it depends if I'm you know, sharing a cab uh, with them on the way over, we might talk about it. Or if we're sitting next to each other on the airplane, we might talk about it. But people don't systematically prepare, and I think it's a big mistake. And I do find that there's a direct correlation between how much people prepare and how well they do in negotiations. Tell the truth. I would just say, and I say this to my, my students all the time, never lie, and there are no exceptions. People are always looking for the exception. Well, what if... They're holding a gun to my mother's head and, you know, asking me if I'm willing. You know, that's not going to happen to you, okay? So rather than think about what are the exceptions. I mean, I was driving along the freeway the other day, and I see this billboard, which I thought was great. It said, uh, I forget what state I was in, but it it said someone today is going to win $30 million in the lottery. And then in small print underneath it said, and it's not going to be you. And then it was, it was basically an ad for a mutual fund company saying, you know, put your money in better places. <laughs> and, and that's how I feel about people say, but what about the exception? And, you know, I, I can, you know, you have to be able to lie sometimes. Never lie. It's much easier to remember. Just always tell the truth. And I'm not saying that for moral reasons, although I think they're excellent arguments morally to never lie. I think practically you do better in the long term if people know you as a trustworthy person. You have to develop a brand around being trustworthy. And so, to me, that's an easy one, and, and most people lie a little bit some of the time. And just think, where, where are you on that curve, and, and try to be better. Because if you have a reputation as being trustworthy, people want to trust you, they are going to help you get things done in life. And that's all life in the workplace, or life in government, or life in academics, is really about can you get stuff done. Again, it's not about getting to the right answer. It's can you get stuff done. If you're trustworthy, it's easier to get stuff done. Apologize and own your contribution. So it's very easy to blame others for problems. Um, I I see this all the time. I manage a a bunch of people in in the workplace, and people are constantly, you know, casting aspersions and pointing fingers. And and often they're right. I'll listen to them and I'll say, Yeah, I do think you know he or she did this wrong. Um, But the finger pointing, the blame, the problem with it is it doesn't work, right? It doesn't lead to any positive outcome. Almost always in conflicts, there are two sides to issues, and I think owning your own contribution, and you always have one. You know, it may be that your contribution is 10% and their contribution to the problem is 90%. But I think focusing on the 10 um, and owning that is a much better strategy for figuring out how to resolve a difficult personal issue than blaming them for their 90%. Last week, an example uh, came up in my life of this. I had a friend that had moved away. We'd fallen out of touch. And, you know, all of you have found and are going to find that some people are good at staying in touch and some people aren't. And you kind of, you lose some friends or they kind of, Uh, become less of a priority for whatever reason. And this is one that I was sad that, you know, we hadn't kept in touch. And my thought was, it's pretty much her fault. You know, I've made an effort, and she really, you know, it's it's her fault that we're not in touch. And I had all kinds of arguments that I was ready to kind of pull out the gun and start shooting. And I thought, you know, it's not going to do any good. Why don't I just apologize for my piece of it? And so I said, you know, so-and-so, look, I really feel bad that we're out of touch. I think, you know, I've probably contributed to that, and I just want to let you know that I apologize, and I'm sorry. And so what's her response going to be? I mean, there's no way she's going to say, yeah, absolutely, it's all your fault, you know. Let's just dwell on that. You know, her response, if she's even half human, and this one luckily is, uh, is she said, oh, you know, it's partly my fault too, and I really feel bad, and let's just figure out how to do this better. Let's sort of, and so I think owning, you know, apologize more. Apologize, it doesn't cost you anything, okay. And I just think that people get so engrossed in being right about things Rather than focusing on what could, you know, they do better in a situation, it's much easier to figure out what you can do and what you can change than what they can do better and what they can change. Stay in the game. If I wrote a book about negotiation someday, one of the chapters would be stay in the game. Um, often it's just wearing the other side down. I use the metaphor of, you know, having a quiver of arrows that you, you shoot. It's probably, I probably don't want to talk about shooting people, but, um, you know, if you pull one arrow out and you shoot and it doesn't work, pull another arrow out, you keep trying things. And, and often it's just persistence. Um, I told my students, I think a few weeks ago, a story of I was pulled over in Los Angeles by a policeman, and I had, uh, you know, it was just—it's a long story—but a bunch of violations. Um, you know, I'd gone through a, I'd gone through a, I'd gone through a red light. Um, I was in a car that wasn't registered. It had no rear view mirror. Three hundred dollars of parking tickets. It wasn't my car. Um, I had no driver's license. I just moved from New York City, and I mean, I was just, and it was just—it was a motorcycle cop. I, was trying a bunch of stuff and none of it was working. He never cracked a smile. He never took his glasses off. And at the end of 45 minutes, I said, look, I've just moved here from New York City. And this is in Los Angeles. I've just moved here from New York City. Is this any way to welcome a guy to Los Angeles? And he looked at me and he said, is there any way that you can prove that you just moved from New York City? I said, well, I don't know. I pulled out my wallet. I took out my identification from my employer. I took out a couple of receipts. And he said, yeah, I believe you welcome to Los Angeles, and he drove away. (laughs) I stood there stunned, stunned. I thought he was going to change his mind for sure. But, you know, it just, over time, something eventually catches. And so sometimes it's all about just staying in the game. Roger Fisher taught me the principle of uh, give them extra. There are always opportunities in negotiations to make it a little bit better for the other side. And people are always, A, grateful, B, surprised, C, they reciprocate. They look to give you benefits. So again, go back to the metaphor of the fixed pie. It's not just about getting a bigger piece of pie for you. How can you make things better for them? I find that in negotiations you can always find ways of making it better for them without making it necessarily worse for you. And so if you're focused on those kinds of options as opposed to just putting options on the table of what's really good for me, which is what most people do, people tend to reciprocate that behavior over time. And I I just find that's a good strategy. Um, there's some other things I was going to say about uh, gender and negotiating with attorneys, but I'll, I'll, I'll just end there and spend the last uh, 10 or 15 minutes answering some of your questions. Anyone have a question? Or I'm happy to talk about other things. In the back. Uh,
1: so, so today I actually went to the mechanic shop and uh, I'm pretty sure I got <laughs> uh, Good I chance.
0: So you got screwed by the mechanic.
1: First time in a mechanic um, I
0: mean, I don't know <laughs> And is that a statement or a question?
1: Mm-hmm. Um, so I just want to know, like, what, what, should, what should I have done to...
0: Yeah, so you went to a mechanic. Um, you felt like you got taken advantage of, and what might you have done differently? Well, I would probably need to hear a little bit more about the specific situation, but I I would say let's just kind of go back and answer that question in terms of the framework. So the framework that we were talking about, um, it sounds like you had maybe some alternatives. One is to go to another mechanic. So I would think about the principle of alternatives. Two is I'd think about the principle of criteria. If they charged you a lot, what are some places you could get some objective standards and criteria? Well, one would be a manual, you know, Chilton's manual. One would be to find out from other mechanics what they would charge for a similar um, process. And so those are kind of the two elements that I would think about in trying to solve that kind of a problem. So whenever you're stuck, think about the framework and going back to the framework and decide sort of where you might go. And you might try those two things, and if they don't work, you might take it to a, a different element. Again, another arrow in your quiver. But in general, how would you
1: deal with someone that might not be telling the truth like you
0: are? Yeah, so if I'm being lied to in a negotiation, sometimes I just process that loud. Now, if you say to the other person, you know what, you're a liar. Okay? How effective is that, right? So if someone is going to lie to you, the last thing you want to do is attribute something to them. A different frame on that might be, wow, that's really surprising. It's really different than the data that I have in my experience. Let's kind of figure it out. You may be right, but it's different than my experience and it's different than my assumptions. Let's kind of explore that together. So a different frame than, you know, just casting aspersions and saying you're a liar. Yeah?
1: Yeah. uh, What experience in negotiating salaries and pay
0: increases? Salaries and pay increases, how do you negotiate them? So salaries and pay increases are about two things, and and they happen to be the same two elements of the last uh, last question. They're about alternatives and criteria, okay? So the most important is having objective criteria. So if you're in an organization, um, and let's say that it's IBM, you want to know what do other people at your level get paid, how quickly have they been increased in their salary? So you want to have some good internal objective criteria. You'd also like to have some external criteria. You know, what are they paying at HP for similar roles? What are they paying at Dell if it's an OEM kind of a job um, for this similar kind of role? So you want to have objective criteria. Number two, you want to think about your alternative. You know, sometimes you need to, you know, let the other side know or at least be prepared. If you don't get the salary increase, maybe you'll go work at HP. And, and often, and I'm not saying you necessarily need to threaten with your al- alternative but you'd at least like to know that if you walked away you'd like to have that in your back pocket so if I know when I go in to negotiate with my manager that I've got a job waiting at Hewlett-Packard and it's 15 percent more salary than I'm getting at IBM I'm feeling more powerful when I go into the negotiation and so developing a good what's called BATNA the best alternative to a negotiated agreement when you go in and having good data about objective criteria I think is really important I mean, students. I hire a lot of students um, because we're an investment bank, and we hire a lot of young people. And you know, there are people that there are students that will come in, and whatever salary you offer them, they ask for more. I mean, you can offer them a million dollars. No, that's crazy. They gotta have more. It's and it's not very persuasive. Now, if they came in and said, "Gee." Um, The other investment banks are paying more. I've done some research. You guys are, you know, 5% lower. That would be super, super persuasive. Or, hey, I've got this offer at Goldman Sachs. They're paying more. You know, that's persuasive. But people would just ask for more no matter what. Not so persuasive. Quick note on gender and, and salary negotiations. So it turns out that, and I don't remember the specific statistics, but most men, something like, you know, 70 or 80%, ask for more no matter what they're offered when they come out of business school. I think the research is done on business school students. And the same, and no, no surprise, what is surprising is that only about 20% of business school women who graduate ask for more. So women tend to think, "Well, wow, I'm lucky to have this job and I shouldn't push and I shouldn't get more, and, and men tend to be like, I'm worth more. Um, and so it's just interesting to think about you know, whether you're a man or you're a woman and you're looking for a job, or if you're hiring a man or a woman, that you know, there are a lot of gender differences um, in how people approach negotiation. Other questions? Yeah. Mr. Uh, Mr. Banana. Yeah. <laughs> how involved were you in the conflict between North Korea and South Korea? Um, I was not personally very involved uh, in the conflict between North and South Korea. We were advising the South Korean government on what they should do, but I never got in the middle of that conflict and didn't actually get up to North Korea. So is was there giving advice to the South on what they should do. So that was the level of involvement. Yes? How do you handle cultural faux pas? Cultural faux pas, well, I've traveled um, quite a bit and made quite a few cultural faux pas. And I find that over time, the best thing to do, if you go into a culture, let's just pick France, okay? Now, if you go into France and you start speaking French and um, sort of acting like you understand the culture and you're good at the language, um, usually what most French people do is they start correcting your French. And they start um, saying, well, you don't really get us. We're, you know, French are complicated, and Americans, you guys are really two-dimensional, but we, we are complicated people. And so what I do when I go to France or any country is I say, you know what, let me just apologize up front for the fact that my French is so bad, okay? And I've lived in France, you know, for a fair amount of time, and, but, you know, I'm just a neophyte here. And if you'll work with me um, and help me, you know, as I make those cultural faux pas, I'd really appreciate it. And they kind of get on your side, oh, no, your French is great and so great that you're not like most Americans. We're really loud and, you know, we hate those people from Texas. And, um, so, so you kind of get them on, you sort of ask for that relationship and you form the bond that way rather than going in and acting like you know everything. And so I think that kind of the humble American is a not too frequent um, character that's played, but that's what I've tried to do over time rather than kind of go in acting like I know more than I do. Other questions, yeah.
1: Are you actually thinking of writing a book?
0: (laughs) Am I thinking of writing a book? Uh, I've been asked that a lot of times, and um, I have thought about it a lot and done very little work on it. Um, (laughs) I I think it's just overly committed between my uh, running a small investment bank and teaching a couple classes at Stanford. But eventually, maybe when I get to that older, gray-haired stage and um, reflect more, you know, right now my life is. Focus mostly on applied work and getting things done, and I find research interesting, I just haven't had the time to do it yet. Yes? How did you get into negotiation at the beginning? How did you get where Yeah, how did I get into negotiation at the beginning? Um, I stumbled into it, is the answer. I was in business school at Harvard, and Roger Fisher, the author of Getting to Yes, had this Harvard negotiation project set up. And I actually was at a party, and I met another person who was involved in the project, and we just started talking, and he introduced me to Roger, and, and one thing led to another. I'll say one other thing about it, which is that um, I had interviewed my first year of business school and gotten a a summer job and I committed my second year. I felt like I was one of these kids that was on a track. You know, I was developing that resume and the next step was, you know, you go to McKinsey or Goldman Sachs or some kind of place. And I just looked around at those options and I thought, you know, I just do not want to be a tool. I just can see what's gonna happen to me. I just, I I, I looked down that path and I just don't wanna become like that. And so I committed not to interview Anywhere in my second year of business school that I wouldn't accept a job that I knew I didn't want to work, and so I didn't do any interviewing. And <laughs> I mean, you know, my business school class of 800, 100 100 went to McKinsey, and so I just decided, uh, you know, I'd rather sort of stumble on something interesting. So I was in the position to take advantage of the opportunity when it came. And I find that often with students, um, and Stanford students are pretty similar to Harvard students in their career aspirations. If you're so narrowly focused on what you want to do and have your 10-year plan, you miss all the interesting thing that comes up and the blinders are on too much. So I was sort of lucky to stumble onto negotiation is the answer. Yes? How do you think about the cost of negotiation? So if the thing that you're trying to sort of arbitrate or negotiate for is so small or uh, compare, in comparison to the social ramifications or the time commitment <coughs> of actually negotiating? Okay, so how do I think about the cost of negotiation and, you know, balance it out against either social ramifications or time uh, ramifications? You know, there's a lot in that question, and we could talk for a half an hour, and and we don't have it on that. But time is often an interest, right? And so I think of time in the interest box, um, how much time someone has. Often people use time to manipulate in negotiation, so they'll say, you know, they start to look at their watch and say, look, you know, we've only got 15 minutes here today. And so what I'll say is, look, you know, maybe there's another time. You know, maybe, let's not try to rush it. And so when people try to manipulate with time, I use that kind of response. I think that going to the first part of your question, sometimes you do want to quantify things. And that particularly comes in when you think about objective criteria. So you want to measure you know, and attach value. If you have a, an ish, a, a complex multi-party negotiation, there are 26 issues. Um, you want to sort of attach value to each one. And the most important thing is to look at those, you know, 20-plus issues as a package as opposed to going issue by issue. What happens so often in deals, particularly when, when lawyers negotiate, is they go issue by issue, and you might say something very different on issue B if the result of issue A was different than you thought. And so I think it's really important to look at negotiations as packages of issues rather than to sort of piecemeal away. I know that's a, a short answer to a good and complex question, but that's what I would do.
1: Question asked earlier about like if you lie at times, then, then how do you handle that? But at times, there are certain people who are like stubborn, like, I know that this is right. And you don't know if he's lying or not. And you, you say, okay, then you, you, you again say, okay, how about we explore this <coughs> way? Or you structure it different way so that it brings our... You, and in this case, you've already de- developed a relationship. So you're talking about like options or trying to create criteria. but But then again, they say, no. I know that this is, this is what happens. So how do you deal with those kind of people? So if people
0: are stubborn and they continue to either mislead you or lie, you know, I, what I do there is name the game. You know, if I feel like I've worked with someone for a long time and I've tried to persuade them um, and to look at different ways of looking at it and they're like, no, this is the way, you know, I, A, think about my alternative. So if I walk away, you know, what's that like? If it's a cold, dark world that I'm walking to, I'm going to work with that person differently. But if my alternative is pretty good, I'm going to think about walking there. And I think that people assume that you have to deal with difficult people in life and they underestimate their alternatives. And so if you're in a workplace, I interviewed someone today that was had been in a workplace where she was working for a manager that she felt was unethical and she'd been there for four and a half years. And I said, Well, how, how quickly after you started working together did you feel that individual, you know, had some ethics challenges or problems? She said, Oh, I knew in the first six months. And I said, Well, why did you stick it out? I mean, you know, you should probably, as soon as you find out you're a really talented young person, there are lots of places. She said, yeah, I should have moved more quickly. And so I think sometimes if you're really with someone difficult, you know, think about how good your alternatives are and, and, and sometimes be comfortable walking away. I have time for one more question. Yes. Have you ever been involved in a negotiation where you're like, man, I really wish I was on the other side and how do you deal with that? Have I ever been in a negotiation where I wished I was on the other side of the table? Yeah, all the time. Um, because, you know, your clients, sometimes you don't either agree with them. I mean, one thing that happens in mediation, this isn't quite your question, but in mediation, you have a natural tendency to, um, you have a natural bias towards the weaker party, okay? So in labor management, often you've sort of naturally side with labor in a sort of Colombia, you know, negotiating between, mediating between the guerrillas and the government. I mean, the guerrillas, you know, it sounds like they're these savage people, but when you get to know them and you camp out with them in the jungle for a few days, you're like, wow, these people have real concerns and interests. So I think there's a natural tendency to sort of side with the weaker party. Now, your question, which is, if you're on one side advocating, do you ever wish you had the other hand? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you know, it's, it's nice to have resources. So if you're on, um, I'm trying to think of an example So, if you're representing, in our business, if you're representing a client and you're negotiating against someone that, you know, and and your client sort of is this small little tiny company and the big company has all these resources and their their alternatives, their baton is really good, you'd love to be negotiating for them because they have all the resources in the world. But what we do, we sort of call ourselves the Robin Hood of investment banks. We want to be advocating for the small guy, right? We want to protect them from the large private equity firms or the large strategic acquirers. So even, it's kind of fun to, to have less of a good hand in cards sometimes and see if you can do well despite that. And I find that it's a good place to close. I find that um, often people think about power and leverage in an unhelpful way. Because I'm young, because I have no resources, because my company's small, I have no chance. I just have to give in to the big guy. And I find that if you look at the most effective negotiators, they often started with very little power. You know, look on the, in the public sector side, Gandhi. So he's this little Indian guy wandering around this big country. You know, did he have much power when he started? No, and he became one of the most effective negotiators in the history, in the history of, you know, sort of public sector negotiations. People often ask me from a business perspective, who have I negotiated against or with? It's really tough and good and I respect. Michael Dell, the guy who was just unbelievable at the negotiation table. Okay, when Michael Dell started Dell Computers in his dorm room, at the University of Texas, and he was going up against Hewlett-Packard and IBM and those guys. Did he have a lot of power? Did he have a lot of leverage? No. He was really, really effective at negotiation, and he got ahead. And so I think that there's a propensity sometimes and a tendency to think if you have the weaker hand, you need to concede or give in. And what I think is if you have the weaker hand, it's more fun, and you just have to be more effective at negotiation. Thanks a lot.